Good morning. Our passage today is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 13. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though for now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proving character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you not, though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, thanks, Elisa. Good morning. Um, my name's Frank, if you don't know me, and um, I've been a member here for, getting on for five years now. Um, me and my wife moved here from the UK back in 2018, and uh, yeah, it's been a real joy, um, not only like living in this amazing place, but being part of uh, this church as well. So as we've heard so far today, we're in the first Sunday of Advent, and we get to explore an amazing topic today, the topic of hope. When I was given this topic to preach on, honestly, I was kind of daunted on the one hand, but excited on the other hand, because hope is an immense thing. It's immensely powerful, and it's something that human beings can't live without. The Cambridge Dictionary defines hope as a verb which means to want something to happen or to be true and usually have a good reason to think that it might. In the Bible, the word that we translate from the Greek into hope is the word called elpida, which means profound certainty. We know that we really need hope in the times that we're living in, right? We're trying to shake off a global pandemic. We're in the greatest rates of inflation since 1982, and even tech companies that seem to be immune from the, I guess, the losses and pitfalls of life, of life um, are laying off people in their tens of thousands. So on the one hand, we know that we need hope, but on the other hand, we're also aware that hope is inherently risky. See, to put your hope in something is to risk being disappointed. 
We really put ourselves out, out there and there's a real chance with most things that we hope for in life that we will be left in despair if they do not match up to what we're hoping in. So we make ourselves vulnerable when we put our hope in things. And, and false hope, it's been proven to have devastating effects uh, on human beings. A famous example of this was US army prisoners of war who were detained for eight years in a brutal compound in northern Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Of the 7,000 or so prisoners that were taken, less than 600 returned home. Of the survivors was Admiral James Stockdale, who was asked by the author, Jim Collins, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, said Stockdale. It was the optimists. Stockdale continued. The optimists were the ones who said, we're gonna be home by Christmas. And then Christmas came and Christmas went. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and it would go. Then the optimists would pin their dates on Thanksgiving. Then the following Christmas. Then the Christmas after that. And Stockdale says that they eventually died of a broken heart. Hope is the central theme of my favorite film of all time, which is The Shawshank Redemption. If you haven't seen it, absolute classic. Definitely a must watch. The main character in the Shawshank Short Redemption is a guy called Andy Dufresne, who's been wrongly sentenced to life in prison for a murder that he did not commit. And when he's on the inside, he befriends a guy called Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman. And in a classic scene in the film, they discuss the topic of hope. Andy talks about his hope that one day when he gets out of prison, He's going to go to Zahuataneo in Mexico and he's going to buy a little place right on the beach, open up a little guest house and then buy a beaten up old fishing boat, do it up and take out his guests, charter fishing. Red gets angry at this because he sees it as false hope. He sees it as an empty dream and he says this to Andy, let me tell you something, my friends, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. What Admiral, I can't say that word. What Admiral Stockdale and Red both correctly understood was the danger of hope aimed in the wrong direction. False hope can provide courage and optimism for a time, but sooner or later, the object of hope will crumble, leaving those who hoped in it far worse off than if they had never hoped in the first place. Proverbs 13:12 neatly summarizes the effects of false hope, saying, hope deferred makes the, the heart sick. All this can leave us asking, can we find a hope that will not fail us? Is it possible to hope in something or someone that will not leave us disappointed? And I believe the answer is yes. I think this Advent, we can, we can rejoice because we have a sure and certain hope, a hope that will never disappoint us, a robust hope that helps us navigate life in a fallen world whilst never losing sight of where we're heading. So let's explore this incredible gift of hope together. 
We're going to unpack this passage and we're going to ask three questions. Why can we trust this hope? What is this hope? And how does this hope impact our lives? So before we dive in, let me just quickly pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Um, Thank you for that incredible carol that we just sang, so powerful. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Thank you, Lord, that you came down to this earth, that you are the one that we can place our hope in. Yeah, thank you for everyone in this room. Praise you for this church and praise you for the family uh, that you're building here. Just really pray that you'd use me, Lord, uh, weak as I am, um, to, yeah, just unpack this message of hope from this passage. And I pray that in your name, Lord. Amen. So, firstly then, why, why can we trust this hope? So Peter writes in verse 3, that our hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given his new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter helps us see that our hope is anchored in a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And according to Peter, if we're gonna look ahead with confidence, firstly, we've gotta look back at the resurrection. Why does Peter start here? Well, firstly, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we would would be utterly foolish to put our hope in him. Jesus had clearly stated in his ministry that upon death, he would rise again. In fact, it's actually such a common theme in his teaching that even the people that hated Jesus knew that this was something that he claimed. So if you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, shortly after Jesus' death, the Pharisees and the chief priests go to the Roman official Pontius Pilate and they say this, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver, Jesus, was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb may be made secure until the third day, otherwise, His disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So even those who wanted to get rid of Jesus knew that if word got out that Jesus had been risen from the dead, that it could ignite a revolution, that it could be so powerful that it could could cause the spread of a movement like wildfire and completely upend the status quo of the day. They knew that if Jesus stayed in the ground, that it would prove once and for all that he was a fraud. His followers would have to accept that they had been deceived and that their hope had been in vain. Other New Testament writers emphasize that without the resurrection, the rest of the Christian faith faith falls flat. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, If Jesus hasn't been raised, then my preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if Jesus is still dead, then we might as well just all go home. But history tells us that Jesus did the unthinkable, that he was true to his promise, and that he did rise victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Hear Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. For I passed on to you 
as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Jesus made a point of appearing to multiple different people at multiple different times. You see, one or two people can be said to have had a hallucination, and you can, you can write it off. Oh, they just wanted it so bad, they wanted Jesus to be alive, that it overtook their mental thinking, and they, they just had this vision that he was, he was alive. But 500 people cannot all have the same hallucination at the same time. He also mentions here, does Paul, that a lot of those 500 people were actually still alive at the time that he wrote, literally inviting people to go up and knock on people's doors and say, is it true? Did, did you really see the risen Jesus? The Bible's account of the resurrection is also backed up by other historical writers that document the explosion of the early church, even in the face of severe persecution and numerous urban pandemics that were devastating the Roman world. The church grew like this because they had a powerful hope that was built upon the resurrection. It was this hope that helped them love their enemies, care for the sick, and face hardships and death without wavering. So, knowing that the resurrection happened as a historical fact is one thing, and that in, in and of itself would be enough to place our hope. But it's not just a set of facts which convinces that hope is intellectually valid. The resurrection actually plays a deep role in, in actually saving you and I in our salvation journey, so to speak. Peter writes that because of God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the most precious things we get to do as a church is baptize people. When a person is dunked into the water of baptism and then raised up again, what we're doing is celebrating the spiritual reality that through faith in Christ, our old self is put to death and then we're raised up to new life. See, Jesus was our forerunner. His resurrection lays down a new reality that through the mercy of God, we come into through faith. This new reality has both begun now, but it's also something that will be fully realized in the future. In the here and now, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us live out this new birth that is ours in Christ. The, the Spirit helps us to grow in the direction of Christ, and he helps us to take hold of the hope that God's given us and to put it to work in our lives. In the future, Jesus' resurrection gives us a taste of what awaits us. Jesus was raised with a physical body that people could recognize. His body could be touched, and, it's, and he could still 
perform basic functions such as eating. Yet, he was now no longer subject to the forces of this world. In John 20, verse 26, Jesus appeared in a room even though the doors were locked. And in Luke 24, verse 31, he vanishes right in front of the disciples and days later, they see him ascend to heaven. Jesus is the first example of what it looks like to be raised to, to life eternal. It's still Jesus. It's still recognizably his body. He's still able to swallow and digest food, but yet he's clearly not of this world any longer. He's no longer subject to the forces of our world. He's free from the limits of space and time. He's free from decay and death. He is risen eternal. And he gives his friends, you and I, a glimpse of what heaven will be like before we go to be there forever. So the resurrection anchors our hope in a past reality. It proves the reliability of our hope and it's also fundamental to our salvation and it's also opened up a way for us to be raised from death to life eternal. So we've looked at the question, why can we trust this hope? Let's consider our next question, what is this hope? Look with me at verse four. Here Peter writes that our hope is in an, in, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance? Well, in the Old Testament, inheritance was closely linked with the promised land and Israel's place in it. A major theme of the Old Testament was the restoration of what had been lost in the beginning. In chapter three of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we hear the story of how human beings enjoyed all the riches and goodness of God's place, the Garden of Eden, with full access to his presence, enjoying deep, rich, unbridled friendship with God. Despite having everything they could ever want or need, our ancestors wanted to rule their own lives, and so they rejected God. The result was that they were banished from the Garden of Eden and from God's presence. A flaming sword over the entrance to the garden symbolized that there was nowhere back. The rest of the Old Testament story is largely consumed with the question, how are God's people going to get back into God's place and enjoy God's presence? Throughout the next few centuries, we read that God chose Abraham to be the forefather of Israel, his chosen people. God provided the land of Canaan, the promised land for his people to dwell. And he also provided the temple where God's presence dwelt in the midst of the people. But the people persisted in sin and continued to worship other gods and ignore the laws of God. until finally, they were defeated by their enemies and taken into exile. It was Eden all over again. The people were taken out of the land that God had given them and the temple was destroyed, symbolizing a loss of the presence of God once again. After this period of exile and despair, God raised up the prophets who spoke of a chosen one who would finally make it possible for humanity to once again enjoy 
being in God's presence and in God's place. Then Jesus comes on the scene, Emmanuel. And he claimed that he was the one who the prophets were talking about. As God's Messiah, Jesus was exiled from God's place as he left heaven for earth. And on the cross, he painfully knew what it was to be cut off from God's presence, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his dying and rising, Jesus made it possible once again for people to inherit eternal life in heaven with God himself. We have an inheritance because Jesus won it for us. He is our kind and loving older brother who is pleased to share his inheritance with us. What a truth. We take hold of this inheritance through faith, trusting in all that Christ achieved for us in his dying and rising and setting our hope on the day when we will step into this inheritance. Peter goes on to describe our inheritance with three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The inheritance that we hope for cannot be broken. It cannot die. It cannot be conquered by anything. We hope in an everlasting inheritance as we look forward to eternal life with Jesus in heaven. In the bike industry, the term bomb-proof is, op- is often used to describe certain bike parts made by certain bike companies. I love all forms of uh, bicycling. Uh, and I have a BMX that has a rear hub that's made by a, profile called, uh, a company sorry, called Profile. And Profile hubs are almost legendary now among BMX riders. And if you have a Profile hub, the expectation is that you will never have to worry about it. You don't have to do any maintenance. You don't have to grease it. They're literally bomb-proof. You can bet your life that it will continue to work year in and year out and never let you down. Consider then that our inheritance was designed by God himself. The inheritance God has promised to us isn't plan B. It was always God's plan A. From the beginning of time, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been working together to provide a way for fallen people to once again enjoy a world without the ugly scars of sin and experience the sweet fellowship with God that was also lost in the beginning. Our inheritance is God's idea, God's design, and God's responsibility. Our inheritance bears God's seal of approval. It is bomb-proof. We can place our hope in it with absolute certainty that it will not fail us. We need, we need not fear disappointment because it will, it will withstand the test of time. Our inheritance is also undefiled, meaning that, it's, that it is perfectly pure in every way. Even the best things that we enjoy in life are polluted by sin. Since moving here in 2018, I've fallen in love with the sport of canyoneering, which is basically making your way down waterfalls and canyons, either by jumping, sliding, or with the use of ropes. In my eyes, it's pretty much the best way to spend your time. 
aside from obviously being here and being in the, with my wife as well. Got to put that out there. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it takes you to places that are pretty much the same as they would have been 10,000 years ago. Like, you're in this big, deep, dark canyon, and you're down there, and you just think, like, there's only maybe a handful of people that have been here, and it literally doesn't look any different than it would have done, you know, many, many, many centuries ago. Yeah, even in some of these canyons, I've almost been impaled by rebar. I've seen inexplicable chunks of concrete just there with all the other nice-looking rocks. I've seen probably one or two too many pairs of underpants that have washed down river from further up. <laughs> Terrible. And I've seen quite a few um, broken drones as well, which is always a little bit sad. So even the wildest and most pristine places on earth have still been defiled by humanity. So praise God that one day we will live in a fully restored creation, com completely free of any impurity and breathtakingly beautiful in its perfection. Peter goes on to say that our inheritance is unfading. This speaks of a quality that is truly lacking in our world, that of enduring and consistent quality. We're all aware of the fact that we live in a world where nothing really lasts. We feel this in a variety of ways, don't we? Materially, the goods that we buy are cheaply manufactured and have short lifespans. I had to print my sermon out here at church today because our relatively new printer with brand new ink cartridges still does not want to work. Relationally, we know painfully that individual friendships and group friendships can fade. Where once we might have had a really good thing going, we can wake up five years later to find that we have grown distant from our once dear friends. And even when we do attempt to meet up with old friendship groups, the spark and the humor and the energy is simply not what it used to be. Things that fade bring us pain, frustration, and disappointment. We're often left yearning for relationships and things that retain their quality, their shine, that, that won't grow dull. Yet again, with, with God, we have a promise of an inheritance that not only matches our expectations for longevity and quality, but far exceeds them. When we arrive in the new heavens and the new, the new earth, everything we experience there will have an eternally constant quality to it. Relationships will be free from decay. Restored creation will not be worn down over time. And our bodies and possessions will remain in optimal condition indefinitely. So we hope in, a, in an inheritance that is everlasting, pure, and constant. Next, Peter goes on to describe God's role in preserving that which we hope for. Verse five says this, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As we discussed earlier, with most things we hope for, 
there is a very real chance that what we hope for can be taken away from us. The loss of hope can often be completely outside of our control. For example, I own a landscaping company, um, it's two years old now, and the majority of my clients are tech workers. And because of their salaries and because of their shares, they're often able um, to more than, more than be able to afford the work that they want doing in their yards. And think for, think for a moment now about the times we find ourselves in economically, and every other day you hear of another tech company that's laying off many, many staff. There's a very, very real chance that this coming year, I might struggle. I might struggle to be in work week in, week out, and to get the types of projects that I've been used to getting. And that's all the more scary given that my wife and I are thinking about potentially starting a family this year coming as well. In and of ourselves, we are powerless to protect what we hope for. We may hope, it, we may hope in starting a family only to find we're unable to conceive. We may hope in a promotion only to be overlooked for someone less experienced than us that our boss knew from college. We may hope in a vacation only to fall sick and have to cancel our plans. What a comfort then to know that when it comes to the hope that God has gifted us, it is God who takes upon, it, upon himself to guard both us and our inheritance. Peter writes that we are being guarded by God's power. This means that the same power that God used when he created every single thing in the entire universe, the same power that's holding all things together in perfect equilibrium, the same power that rolled away the stone and raised Jesus up to new life, is the same power that God is using to guard us and to guard our inheritance. The reason why our hope is so sure and certain is because God is personally invested in it. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he, that's God, who started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When God makes promises to his people, he takes those promises very, very seriously. He does this because he is good. He loves us. And that he is incapable of breaking a promise. He also keeps his promises for his own glory. God is fiercely passionate about his own glory. Ezekiel 39, 25 reads, So this is what the Lord God says, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have compassion on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. God will not allow his name to be slandered. He will not allow there, there to be any mark against his name. See, it would be comforting if the only reason that God guards us is because he loves us, and that would, that would be enough. But the fact that he is also fiercely protecting his own name and showing the world that he keeps his promises gives us profound certainty that what we hope for will not disappoint us. 
So we've looked at why we can trust this hope. We've looked at what this hope is. Finally, let's consider how this hope should impact our lives. So firstly, according to verse seven, our hope leads us through adversity. Peter writes this, you rejoice in this even now for a short time, if necessary. You suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the, res- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians rejoicing in the face of adversity is one of the main reasons that the early church grew so fast. There seems to be something powerful about the hope that God has gifted us, which enables us to navigate the grief and trials of life. Our hope is powerful because we know with certainty how things end for those who love God. God has graciously allowed us to read the last page of the book of our lives. We know what awaits us and we know it will come to pass. This knowledge in our future destiny helps us to live well in the present because it frees us to hope in people, places, and things without looking to them to bring us ultimate meaning and purpose. Our hope means that when we face suffering, we're not derailed. We can grieve and mourn how broken we are, how broken others are, and how broken our world is. We are not Christian robots. We can let our emotions out in a healthy way, but always with the undertone of hope. Every time we feel the pain of sin, we can look ahead to a time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When we experience the death of family and friends, we can remind ourselves that Jesus' resurrection means that we too will be raised to everlasting life. Our mindset is so critical as we navigate life in a fallen world. In verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We must ready our minds for the disappointments and frustrations of life, all while setting our hope on what God has promised us. This is what got those American prisoners of war back home. They were real with themselves about their situation, but they never stopped believing that one day they could be liberated and that they could return home. So our hope helps us to face the trials of life. Our hope also produces patience. Verse five says, you're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the last, the last times that Peter mentions here um, refers to a time that can happen at any time, according to the Bible. So it could be tomorrow, but it could also be t- you know, 10,000 years from now. We do not know when Jesus will come again and bring us into the glorious inheritance in which we hope. Like so many things in the ways of God, our hope requires patience. Consider patience in the Christmas story. Don't you think it's slightly weird that the Son of God actually came as a baby? Like, if you think about it, like, 
Think about how much is riding on what, what, this, what this human being is going to do. Like, why, why didn't he just come down as a, as a 30-year-old man and just, and just start his ministry? Jesus came as a tiny baby. He was completely dependent on his parents for everything. Think about this. He was potty trained. He learned how to feed himself. He learned how to walk, how to run, and how to jump. He committed much of his life pre-ministry to carpentry, which in itself requires an incredible amount of patience. Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus would be, and yet they had to wait 30 years until his first miracle. The shepherds and the wise men who visited Jesus when he was a baby most likely died before his 21st birthday. And the people of God who had been waiting for a Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had to wait patiently until he grew into his destiny. Putting our hope in Jesus requires patience because God's timing is often slower than we would like. We must grow our patience muscles as we wait for our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. God will reveal what we hope for. He has promised as much. Our job is to patiently wait and get this, know that God is refining your character as we do so. It's a mysterious thing and we don't have time to delve into it, but the Bible does talk about the fact that we do carry something of what we've done in this life into eternity. And I believe that this patience it's an opportunity for God to, to do the work in us that will be, will be there eternally. Um, yeah, I think, I think we really um, would do well to remember that when things take longer than, than we want to, that God could be about a great work in us. We find it easy to be patient when we're deeply invested in the outcome. Recently, upon the death of the Queen, us Brits showed the world that we are truly the best at standing in line. <laughs> there was a queue that at one point took more than 24 hours to get from the back to the front in order to pay tribute to the Queen as she was lying in state. See, if we care enough about what we hope in, we are willing to be patient and wait as long as is necessary to receive that which we're hoping for. Consider then that we hope in eternal life, in paradise, that's Jesus' words, in perfect union with God. Let this truth produce patience as we wait upon God. For in the end, it will all be worth the wait Lastly then, our hope produces joy and worship. In verses three, six, and eight, Peter writes that this wonderful gift of hope leads to exuberant joy and sincere worship of God. Imagine with me that you knew that on Christmas Day, you were gonna receive something truly life-changing. Like a check that completely writes off your student debt. 
or completely writes off your mortgage. Imagine if the socks that your auntie bought you are actually a priceless heirloom worth an entire fortune. If you knew that about what you were going to receive on Christmas Day, it would put a spring in your step and a smile on your face. And you would probably be looking out the window right now, daydreaming about how your life would change after Christmas Day. Friends, don't we have something infinitely greater to look forward to than what I just described? We hope in an inheritance so great we can never spend it and so enduring that we will never plumb the depths of it. We have the hope of God himself. We will be able to once again walk with God in the cool of the day and to be close to his glory once more. If we ever find ourselves lacking in joy and a heartfelt desire to worship Jesus, then one question we should ask ourselves is, is my hope still in the right place? It's so easy to end up hoping in the same things that the world hopes for, especially the more comfortable we get as well. The things that the world hopes in are fragile and they can easily end up letting you down. So let's regularly meditate on the inheritance that Jesus has won for us. Let's engage our intellect regularly with the historical reliability of the resurrection. Let's ask God to bring the hope that he has given us alive again if it grows cold and lifeless. And let's ask God to excite us with the glorious inheritance and that he would continue to guard us and keep us until we step into that inheritance in the future.